Uh, we appreciate all the singers and all the music this morning. And that last song especially leads us right into where we want to go today concerning the future life of the, uh, that stands before us, both as believers or unbelievers. In the uh, 2022 State of the Theology survey that we've been banking off of for the last 10 sermons uh, concerning what people believe today, the Lifeway Legionnaire survey, they didn't even ask the question what people thought about the future or the end times. Uh, that is, uh, and that reflects on a number of things. First of all, most people today don't care very much about the future. Uh, they they uh, are fixated on today. There's a there's a hashtag website called hashtag YOLO. You only live once. That reflects what a lot of people believe today, especially young people. On there, there's all sorts of quips and, and quotes and so forth of what people say about living. Some of the quips will go like this, have more fun, do what makes you happy, wear Crocs to the prom, uh, buy Girl Scout cookies, overpay for tacos, indulge in that decadent dessert, drink that extra cocktail, buy those overpriced sneakers, pull the trigger on that new sports car, hike that mountain, avoid the big pile of clothes in your laundry room, yay, uh, pay for that marathon, uh, decide that you will pay almost anything not to run a marathon, and so forth. The idea is you only live once. And the rationale behind this is since you only live once, uh, there are no eternal consequences in front of us, so live any way you want to, do whatever you want to, because when this life is over, it's over. And that's the attitude probably of most people today. Uh, the the seeker-sensitive church caught that particular idea years ago, back in the 70s and 80s, and Lee Strobel, for example, wrote a book on, on the whole subject of evangelism with uh, this generation, that, which is now the baby boomer generation, I guess, and moving forward. But he suggested that we no longer ask people anything about the future, no longer talk about what might happen in the next life, because people just simply didn't care about that. And therefore, instead of talking about eternity, let's talk about the now. Um, you might remember that that's a very major shift from the past, you might remember James Kennedy's Evangelism Explosions that was written in 1972, and that became the, the, the basically the, the evangelistic methodology for decades among many churches. And the key question that you were supposed to ask everybody when you're trying to talk to them about Christ was this, if you were to die tonight and the Lord asked you why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? I think it's a pretty good question. That gives you a perspective on, on why you would go to heaven or wouldn't go to heaven, and, and that's a pretty good question. But that, according to Strobel and, and Willow Creek and those groups, is, is ineffective today because people no longer care about heaven. They no longer care about hell. They no longer care about the future. What they're concerned about, Strobel told us, was their happiness and their purpose and their success and their health and the immediate things of the moment. And banking off that idea that this is what people care about, they began to reshape the gospel and made the gospel into something where if you come to Jesus Christ, if you pray this little prayer, he's going to give you all, everything your little heart desires. Whatever you might want, whether it's success or happiness or prosperity or, or good health or whatever it might be, just pray that prayer and Jesus will give it to you. And that became the, the, the morphing and the, the mutilation, I would say, of the gospel in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and going forward to today, to today, nobody hardly notices that the gospel has been mutilated. 
The gospel is not come to Jesus and you'll have a wonderful, prosperous life. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins, to give you forgiveness before the Lord, to, to bring you back to, to a fellowship, removing the alienation between us and God. That's the gospel message. It's not about how you can be happier and more prosperous with life. But according to these guys, uh, since people are so concerned about the future, are not concerned about the future, but concerned about the present, that if you want to reach them with the gospel, you have to tell them a false gospel. And that's, that's incredibly sad. Here's another reason people aren't concerned about the future, and that is because uh, eschatology has been relegated to a second or third tier doctrine. Nobody cares about eschatology. Don't talk about end time stuff. That tends to divide Christians. Don't, don't even bring it up. Most churches, if you go on their websites, uh, you'll find that most churches and most mission organizations don't even have a statement about what they believe about the end times. And so that has been relegated to an unimportant doctrine. Uh, the, re- the return of Christ, the, the rapture, and so forth that we'll talk about today, heaven and hell, those are kind of secondary things. And then one more thing I would mention uh, as another reason why many have uh, stopped being concerned about the future and about the return of Christ is because of the, the overemphasis on the return of Christ that took place uh, back a number of years ago, and especially the date setters. All sorts of people started standing up and writing books, all these preachers and all this, these websites and all that kind of stuff eventually were, were declaring that the Lord had to come back by such and such date. Chuck Smith, for example, and a lot of you never even heard of Chuck Smith until the new movie just came out called Jesus Revolution. But when Chuck Smith was in his heyday, he predicted the Lord had to come back by 1981. And, of course, Christ didn't make it. Following him, there's Hal Lindsey's books, Late Great Planet Earth. There was Edgar Weisnott who taught, wrote two books, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Had to Return by 1988. Oops. And then he wrote 89 reasons why Jesus had to return by 1989, double oops. And, and then you have John Hagee, who's still around, I think, uh, preaching a false gospel concerning the return of Christ. All these date setters began to wear people out. And they said, this is, just too, this is nonsense. This is wearing me out, and we don't want to even talk about it any longer. And so that's a sad turn of events. But the Bible spends a great deal of time talking about the future. And uh, we are going to do so a little bit today as well. We cannot simply ignore what the Bible says about the future because of uh, people have disregarded it for some reason or see it as unimportant or it bothers their sensibilities. We must turn to what God's Word says. It doesn't matter what people say, but it does matter what God says about the future. And we want to take a quick look at that today. So what does every person, including every Christian, need to know about the future? And the answer to that question is especially relevant in an age of turmoil and unrest and uncertainty. So we want to pinpoint just the highlights of a number of things that Scripture teaches us about the future, things we must know. Number one, Christ is coming back, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 in a moment if you want to go there. But before we move to Romans 8, We'll look first of all at Titus chapter 2, verse 13, which I'll put some scriptures up on the board today because it's, uh, i got so many scriptures I want to look at. So you can look up at this one. Titus 2.13, concerning the second coming, says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Uh, this is the only time in scripture where the return of Christ is called the blessed hope. Of all the hopes that we might have in life, 
or in the future. This is the blessed one. This is the, this is the happiest one. We're looking forward to the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. It's a joyful hope. We're hoping, and not just hope, 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 but a hope of trust that this world is not going to continue down the line. It's going now full of sin and corruption. But this, that world is going to be changed by the return of Jesus Christ. Now go to Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 to 25. That, it, this kind of fleshes out at least some aspects of the blessed hope as we look at these verses together. In a world that we live in, a world that is polluted by sin and corrupted by the iniquity, uh, the Christian has been saved from all that, but we don't live without those effects. Sin affects us. Sin is within us. Uh, Sin is all around us. And until uh, the Lord comes back for us, we will battle with those things. But there are resources for the Christian that the the world does not have, that the unsaved person cannot imagine. And those resources are found throughout the scriptures and especially the New Testament epistles. But we're going to look at one today that it often is missed and probably isn't added to the list often. And that is to have an eternal perspective. That you and I as a Christian need to have an eternal perspective. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. He's been talking about a number of things concerning life. And, and our, as a matter of fact, Owen Strand last week preached from the verses just prior to verse 18. And so that leads us right up to that. But Paul is saying if we're going to be able to live in the world such as we live now and live with hope, then we're going to have to have this eternal perspective. And in order to get that, there's two things we must do. Number one, we must consider. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Consider. This is, a, this is a word that speaks of a numerical calculation. It's sitting down and thinking, pondering, uh, uh, digging into something. He, it's not something we just glance over in a very quick look. It's a pondering. It's digging down. He says, I want you to consider something. I want you to look at the world around you and the, the sinful situations and all the corruption and all the things that cause you anxiety. And as you look at those things, I want you to consider something else. I want you to consider that the sufferings, and he does not minimize suffering. People in this world suffer. Christians suffer. He never minimizes that. God never minimizes that. But at the same time, he says while we are are living in this world of suffering, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. Another verse that speaks of that same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For the far, for momentarily light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so that is the perspective that we are to consider. That what we go through now is not worthy to be compared to that which God has planned for us. Now the second thing we should do here is not only consider, but we need to start living out the truths that are found here. And I'm going to reread verses 19 to 25 and then we'll back up. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly. I want you, just as you observe, notice the repetition of different words. Uh, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, notice that word, and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. 
And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of, as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for that which he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You know, it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to live out the truth. And if we don't live out the truth, it's very questionable whether we really know the truth. So consider that. I could line up any number of good old boy Christians, you know, the kind of dried up old saints who was, if you ask them the question, do you want to go to heaven when you die? They say, sure. What's the alternative is not too pleasant. And they would say, yes, I want to go to heaven when I die. But do they really believe what they say? Do they really believe that heaven awaits us and we live in the light of that hope that this passage talks to us about? In verse 23, he says here that we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and that we have the first fruits of the Spirit That means we have a divine taste of the future. If you're a Christian, you've already tasted eternity. You don't have eternity. That's waiting for the future. That's why he speaks of hope at the end. But you have a foretaste of the future. You have the previews of what that might be, the first fruits, as he calls it here. Last summer, Marsha and I took two of the grand boys to to Utah and had a wonderful vacation out there in the canyons of southern Utah. But before we went, we, had, we did all so, I did, in a way, all sorts of research. I don't think anybody else did, but I did all sorts of research. I was looking at videos. I was reading books. I was planning the future of that. And as I looked at all these things, it was, it was wonderful stuff. I was looking forward to it. What, what beauty lies before us. But when we actually got there, it was a whole different thing. There's one thing to see pictures. It's another thing to watch a video or read a book. But to actually be in those canyons and the beauty that God has created on this planet is a whole different piece of work. And so there's a certain sense in which we have in the Word of God, we have this foretaste. We have this knowledge. We have some information. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. But that's only a foretaste of that which is to come. We're already God's children, but we do not yet see Him face to face. We are already heirs of God, but we have not yet received our full inheritance. We are already glorified, but we have not yet been been accorded our final glorification. Today we groan, verse 22 and 23 says it twice, we groan, life is often difficult. So those of you that are pretending it's not, you're a liar, right? I mean, let's get over it. Life is tough, it's not always tough. Sometimes life is quite precious and sweet and wonderful. But in this life we face issues. We face sickness. We face death. We face hurt. We face betrayal. We face the consequences of sin of others and our own sin. We face all these things and this life is not heaven. We groan in this life. But we also live in with an eternal perspective of hope. Six times in this short passage he mentions the word hope. He mentions it in verse 20. In verse 24, four times in verse 24, and once in verse 25, we live in the hope of Christ and what he has planned for us, his children. So what is God's plan for the future? What does he have for us? It says here that we're eagerly waiting for it. Three times he says that, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 25. 
We're eagerly waiting for the Lord to do something. When you're eagerly waiting for something, uh, what's your emotions? Now, if you're eagerly waiting to get married, to have kids, to go on a vacation, to retire from your job, to graduate from school, to get, to get this sermon over with, if you're eagerly waiting for any of those things, what are your emotions? Well, probably emotions of excitement, and happiness, and anticipation. You're looking forward to something. In life, in life, we need to be looking forward to something, right? But a lot of the things we look forward to disappoint. But not the hope of Christ. Not the blessed hope. Which never disappoints and will never disappoint. And will go on forever and ever not disappointing us. We're eagerly waiting for such a time. Because there is no such time on this planet. There is no complete satisfaction on this planet. There's nothing that totally gets it for us on this planet. That awaits another time. And we eagerly await for it. We have the first fruits. We have a taste of that glory that's coming. But we do not have the final product yet. So what are we waiting for? What is the process? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me and we'll look at one of the things we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to what the scripture calls the rapture. To the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Now as we look at this, not everybody in Christendom agrees with all the timing of the rapture. But every Christian believes in the rapture or they don't believe in the Bible. Because right here in this passage of scripture, we have the most, most clear passage in all the scriptures on this event that we often call the rapture. I want you to look at it with me. I hope you're looking forward to this. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, as those, as though you'd, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Notice that word hope again. We have hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So Paul's addressing people that need hope, and we have hope in the return of Christ. The rapture is the event in which the Lord himself comes back to the clouds, it says here, to our atmosphere, and he catches up the New Testament believers to be with him and to go back with him into heaven. The un- those who have already passed away will be resurrected, given new glorified resurrected bodies, and those of us who are still alive at the rapture will have be changed. 1 Corinthians 15 says, we will be changed to be given new bodies that will be able to live throughout all eternity. In verses 16 and 17, we're told eight things about the rapture. And I'm going to to plow right through these very, very quickly. And uh, hopefully you can follow these things. But jot them down or look at them, and and you can come back to them later. Eight things that happen at the time of the rapture. First of all, Christ himself will descend from heaven to the clouds, but not to the earth. doesn't say anything about him coming to the earth. He comes to the clouds, to the atmosphere. Secondly, he comes with a shout. And this word for shout means a command. It's a command for the church, the church-age saints, to be gathered to him. 
Uh, you might remember when Lazarus was in the grave. Remember that? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus was in the grave. In John chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And when he said, Lazarus, come, came forth, Lazarus came forth. That's exactly the kind of shout we're talking about here, this command. Thirdly, the voice of the archangel will accompany him. There are only one other place in Scripture that speaks of an arch, archangel. Jude 9, which speaks of, of, of Micah the archangel. And so he will come with the Lord and the armies of the Lord. With a trumpet of God. Under the Old Testament law, that's number four, with a trumpet of God. Uh, when, when God came down to the people, as it is to meet with them, then they came with the trump, because of the trumpet blast. For example, in Exodus 19.16, at the giving of the Ten Commandments. So, so it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning, flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. A trumpet was sounded, the people gathered, and the Lord ministered. The Lord came down on that mountain. And so we have the same idea here at this time. He, came down, he comes down with the trumpet sounding. Christ, God is here. Christ is among us. The trumpet is sounded. And then we have a, a fifth thing. The dead in Christ will rise first. I've already mentioned that. Those who have already gone on, who have already died in Christ, will now be resurrected and given new bodies. Six, the alive Christians will be caught up together with them and changed. And the word caught up here in this verse is the word from which we get our word rapture. It's a Latin translation is the word rapture. We're rapture. We're snatched up. We're caught up by an irresistible power. Seven, we meet the Lord in the air. And eight, we'll always be with the Lord. And so these are eight things just in those two verses that tell us about what's happening at the time of the rapture. But there's also another event we're looking forward to, and that is the second coming of Christ. Go back to Revelation chapter 19 and look at this event. The rapture and the second coming are not the same thing. How do we know that? On a number of ways, but one of the most important is that we compare the descriptions of the two, and they're not the same. We just saw what happens at the rapture. The Lord comes in our atmosphere. He calls the saints up to be with Him. And we go up to be with Him and are with Him forever. But at the second coming, something very different happens. Look at verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19 with me. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. By the way, verse 8 tells us that's us. That's us, the saints. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will he tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That last verse song we sang today really fits these two things, the rapture and the second coming. So at the second coming, we see that he comes back to the earth. Zechariah chapter 14 says he stands on the Mount of Olives and it splits apart. He's actually on the earth, not in the atmosphere. He comes not to call, just to call people to himself and take them back to heaven. He comes to defeat all of his enemies, 
All who've ever opposed him will now be defeated at the second coming of Christ. Living saints are going to be ushered into his kingdom now. As, as live, as mortal. His kingdom will be set up on earth. Chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. Followed by the great battle with Satan at the end of chapter 20, verses 17 on down. And then Satan is defeated, cast into the lake of fire. A final judgment comes on all those who rejected Christ. And then in chapter 21, the eternal kingdom is set up. And he said, wow, that's fast. All right, it really was. I'm giving you bullet points. If you're interested in more details, come to the BTI tonight, our training institute. I'll be going through the greatest sermon ever preached on the coming of Christ and the end times, the Olivet Discourse by Jesus himself. And we'll be going to spend two nights on the Olivet Discourse. So if you want to know details, uh, you can come to that tonight. I just gave you the uh, cliff notes on that. But I must move on. We could spend, obviously, days and weeks and months, perhaps, on what I just said. But we want to move on now. I want to look at two more things concerning the future. Very important things. First of all, the eternal destiny of the lost. We're still in chapter 20 of Revelation. The eternal destiny of the lost. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged for these things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We're looking now at the subject that we usually call hell. Hell's not a popular subject today. Matter of fact, Martin Marty, a well-known theologian, liberal theologian for the past, who died probably just recently, I think, said that uh, hell disappeared at some point around 1960. And no one noticed, he said. No one can say for sure what happened when this happened. First it was there, and then it wasn't. One Harvard uh, theologian, Harvard Divinity School professor, said that hell has been on decline for 400 years and is now so diminished that that the process is irreversible. And I quote, I don't think there can be any future for hell. Well, before we dismiss that hell too quickly, let me encourage you to see what God has to say about it. Uh, it doesn't matter what is popular and it doesn't matter what our sensibilities are and sensitivities are. Hell matters because God says it matters. And for those who do not know Christ as their Savior, they're facing eternal hell. God says in these verses, verses 13 to 15, that hell is a place. And he tells us that hell itself, you notice carefully, is actually cast into the lake of fire. Hell and the lake of fire are distinguished. They're not the same thing. Hell apparently is the place of judgment and punishment for the spiritual nature of humanity. You recall back in Luke chapter 16 when Lazarus and the rich man, different Lazarus by the way, Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus died, he went to paradise. The rich man, well, he died and went to Hades or hell. And he was tortured there. He was in torment there, he said. He was punished there. 
But remember, his body was still in his casket. His body was not in hell. His spirit was in hell. And so when we come back to this passage here, we find that when he says that hell was thrown into the lake of fire, I think he's saying there are two forms of eternal judgment. One is spiritual and one is physical. The spiritual nature is when people die is in hell or Hades. That is now cast into the lake of fire, the physical judgment. So for all eternity, there's a spiritual dimension and a physical dimension to the judgment upon those who do not know Christ. And if that doesn't scare you a bit and bother you a bit, I don't think you're listening. Because that's the most horrifying thing that any of us could consider for ourselves or anyone we care about on this planet. That there is a real hell and it's a place that people are going to go who do not know Christ. Including perhaps some of you in this room today up to this point. And we hope that's not true by the end of the day. Well, we cannot know for certain about the nature of hell as we don't know for certain about many of the features of heaven. But we do know that it is a place of destruction and ruin and eternal separation. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from His glory and His power. Eternal separation from God forever and ever and ever. It's a place of darkness and of fear and of judgment and often compared to fire. We do not know the death, and we also know that our destinies, folks, are set at the moment of our death. Hebrews 9.27, and inasmuch as is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's no second chances, contrary to C.S. Lewis and his book on hell. There's no getting out if you want to. You are, at your destiny is set at the moment of your death. And yet few consider hell today or take it seriously. A survey a few years ago revealed that 70% of Americans believed in heaven and think they have a pretty good chance of getting there. But only 50% believed in hell. And only, now listen to this, 0.005% thought they could possibly go there. Talk about spiritual delusion and blindness. Dante, in his classic poem, The Divine Comedy, had a sign placed over the entryway to hell. And that sign, as some of you might recall, says this, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It is a place utterly devoid of any hope. It's a place of utter despair. So in contrast to what we saw earlier in Romans, we who live by hope, and have hope, and and are looking for the blessed hope, are in contrast with those who have no hope, and never will. And so we need to know that about the future, folks. It's not a pleasant subject. No one likes to talk about it. If you like to talk about hell, there's something wrong with you. Uh, I don't like to talk about hell. You don't like to talk about hell, but it's real. It cannot be avoided if you do not know Jesus Christ. But you don't have to go there. Because we are going to move now to the second a thing that will happen after for the for us actually the third point of our message the eternal destiny of the redeemed the eternal destiny of the redeemed we have to distinguish between the destiny first of all of the believer when they die from the destiny of eternity so what happens when you die 
First Corinthians chapter 5 tells us a great deal. All first, first nine verses, actually ten verses. I'll read only verse 1. This is a central passage, I think, on this subject. For we know that if this earthly tent, that is our bodies, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. At the moment of your death as a Christian, your soul, your spirit goes directly into the presence of Christ. You will be alive. You'll be awake. You'll be functioning in, in eternal bliss and what we usually call heaven. And so there's where, there's where our loved ones have gone who knew Christ. There's where you will go if Christ doesn't come back first. If this intermediate state where a state apparently we do not have a body, but we live in a spiritual dimension with the Lord in heaven. But what about the eternal state? That's the intermediate state. What about the eternal state? There's much we don't know about eternity, probably because we couldn't handle it. If the Lord did put it in the scriptures, we couldn't understand it. But there are some things we know. And I want to give you a handful of those yet this morning. First of all, we will know that we are at home with the Lord. John 14, verses 1 to 3 says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to prepare a place for us. We are going home. You're going home. Dorothy said it pretty well. Remember her? There's no place like home, she said. And I think that's often true. Uh, we, we, no matter how far we roam or how long we roam, we want to go back home. Older saints are homesick. They'll often break out in tears. Watch, watch some Gaither video sometime when they're singing songs about going home or being with God. And watch the audience as it's panned. And the older saints with tears running down their faces, looking forward to going home. A place they've never been, a place they've never seen, but they know it's there. They're homesick. The child of God is homesick for home. Secondly, we, we will be at rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore... Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fail or fall through following the same example of disobedience. There's a rest waiting. Revelation 14, 13 says it this way, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. There's a rest that is coming. That doesn't mean we're going to sit in heaven and do nothing. That doesn't mean we're going to sit around playing harps on clouds and, and uh, doing whatever silly stuff people have come up with. That means we're going to be very active according to Scripture. We're going to be very busy serving our Lord, but we're going to rest. We're going to be able to do that which is great and wonderful and productive without the anxiety, without the problems, without the corruption of sin. We'll be able to rest and rest in Him. Thirdly, we'll be holy and sinless. Revelation 20. Uh, oh, thirdly, we will live in comfort. I'll get to the other one in a minute. We'll live in comfort, uh, Luke sixteen twenty five. But Abraham said, "Child, remember that during your life you receive your good things, 
and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Comfort for Lazarus, the one who knew the Lord. Our life will be a life of peace and comfort. Next, we will be holy and sinless. What a, what a thing to look forward to. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will ever be there. And sin will never touch the life that we will, in, will live throughout all eternity. Sin will never penetrate the walls of heaven. We will, be, we will retain our identity, apparently. It says in Matthew 22, 23, or 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So we know that we will maintain our identity to some degree, perhaps our, what we look like to some degree, our personalities to some degree. But whatever that will be, it will be all cleansed from sin. All the, all the smudges, all the muck of sin will be gone and we will be what we were meant to be in his image. Next, we have the fact that we will have an expanded knowledge. Romans 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. We're not going to be omniscient in heaven. We're not going to know everything like God does, but the blinders are going to be removed. And for the first time in our lives, we will see clearly. We'll not be deceived by anybody coming up with different fads and ideas or, or ideologies. We will see clearly, and we'll see him clearly. We'll see him face to face. And then one more, in some sense, we'll be like Christ. In 1 John 3, 2, it says this, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as to what we will be. We know that when, we, when he appears, we will be like him, because we'll see him just as he is in some sense, certainly we're not going to become God, but we are in some sense going to be like Jesus Christ, and we will see him for what he is, and we'll become like him. Finally, we want to address one more thing. We want to look at Revelation 21 and 22. What will our new home be like in eternity? What will it be like? Chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation gives us the fullest picture of any place in Scripture. Let me read a couple of verses. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. First of all, we see uh, three, three new things here, a new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. That tells us in, in this passage of Scripture, we actually live in the new Jerusalem that will come down and, and be on the new earth. And so in a sense, we're going to be on the new earth forever. This earth that we have now is going to be renovated and, and, and cleansed and perhaps completely destroyed and replaced. It's going to be new, and the new Jerusalem comes down on that new earth, and our, our eternal home is going to be on that new earth in the new Jerusalem. In verse 3, it says, however, that God himself will be with us, and that's even the better part, isn't it? And I heard a, vo a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among us, and he will dwell among them, he sh and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. There's the key. Not just our home and where it is, but God will tabernacle among us. He will be with us. What a, what a joy. And this is, this is in uh, fulfillment of the promise Jesus made 
back in John 14, 3. If I go up a pair of plates for you, I will come again and, and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, that we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. In addition, our new life will be free of the curse of sin, verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so wonderful will be our new home is that, that it can only be described by negatives, the things that it is not. We cannot understand it in the positive. We're no longer any tears there's no longer any death there's no longer any mourning or crying or pain they're passed away they're gone and in verse 5 and he who sits on the throne says behold I am making all things new and he said write for these words are faithful and true and then he said to me and I love this, these words it is done it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Wow. What precious words, right? He who thirsts. The one who wants to come to God for the cleansing of their sins. Be right before almighty God. They will be given eternal life. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we will inherit all these things that we've been looking at here the last few moments. And I will be their God, and uh, we will be his son. It doesn't get any better than that. No eternal perspective? We need an eternal perspective. This is what comes up in the future. I've always been kind of touched by the last lines of the Narnia series. Many of you have read Narnia. The very last lines of the the book by C.S. Lewis, of the books by C.S. Lewis, closes this way which reminds me so much of what God promises here in Revelation. It says, for, this, for us, this is the end of all the stories, that is the stories of Narnia, the several books. But for them, that is the characters in the series, it was only the beginning of the real story. Now listen to this, because I think it describes what God is describing for us. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. That's for us, if we know Christ. Father, we come before you now, thanking you for the eternal gift of salvation that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, our heart pleads today for those that may not know you, who are sitting under the hearing of the word, perhaps in this worship center, perhaps at home, through live stream, or perhaps we'll, we'll listen to it later, or maybe hear another presentation. Our heart breaks for those that do not know you as Savior, who have lost all perspective of eternity, who don't love you or know you or thirst for you. Father, only your spirit can create a thirst in the hearts of people. May you do that this morning. May there be people in this room and listening to these words, who you are now, even at this moment, creating a thirst for Christ in them. And then, Lord, draw them to yourself and save them, that you might be their God and they might be your child. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.